Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome to From the Holodeck, the Strange New Worlds edition. I am Michael, your captain and host, and at the bridge with me, or in the bridge, is David. Hello, Dave. I think that's the proper way of saying captain. Everything's yes. clear. Okay. In this episode, we've got some really interesting topics to discuss. The episode titled, Ad Astra Per Aspera, delved into a significant issue pertaining to eugenics and how it relates to the overall ideology that Star Trek has been built on since day one. The thing that's really, that was really nice about this episode was the fact that we finally got a callback that I mentioned in our last show about the eugenics war, something from Enterprise. At least something from Enterprise was important enough to bring into scope. Well, we figured they were going to because of the Illyrian aspect last season. Yes. It was only a matter of time, especially with the cliffhanger and Una being arrested at the end of season one. And of course, the the introduction of that same storyline at the beginning of this season. I mean, it was it was going in that direction. I wasn't sure how they're going to handle it. And they handled it very delicately. And we're going to focus a lot of time today on that specific issue, dealing with eugenics and what was actually said. Um, It was a topic that needed to be touched on again in order to substantiate the dangers affiliated to genetic augmentation in the world of Star Trek. Yes. And I say needed because times have changed and polarizing you know, views pertaining to eugenics isn't necessarily the same as it was in the 1960s when Roddenberry had introduced this idea into the cosmology of Star Trek. Also, certainly an episode like this isn't entirely unique, but the dissection and extrapolation of ethics is a guiding thematic element in Star Trek and is just as important as the show's foundations that keep the shows ideologically consistent between series. And as far as interpretations go, much of the episode was an allegory outside of the eugenics aspect was an allegory for cultural assimilation, which has been a growing debate now for a few decades. And it positions two opposing ideas from differing generations against each other And those three topics that I just briefly skimmed through is going to be the bulk of our discussion because this episode, David, is a textbook example of classic Star Trek storytelling. Exactly. And on top of that, it never once makes you choose a side. 
that's the important part about this type of writing that they did in this episode. Mm-hmm. They gave their own, uh, I guess you could say their emotional stance mm-hmm. to, to the subject, but they never once pointed at the audience to say, you have to actually conform to us because this is the right way of thinking. Star Trek has never done that. Even when they, it's obvious that they're expressing a worldview, let's say, in the world of Star Trek, they're not doing it in a soapbox type of fashion. They're not pointing their finger at the audience. They're simply to say, this is how you can view things. This is how things operate when you combine these aspects of A, B, and C. It's not about preaching. It's about helping people think critically, which is what Star Trek, you know, has been built on. I don't want to say critical thought necessarily, but philosophy It is an aspect of critical thought and Star Trek is built on strong notions of philosophy. So by default, what we have here is a show that likes to express views, social views. I don't want to say political views because I don't feel like Star Trek is necessarily political and that's up for debate. I know there are listeners out there as well as Star Trek fans I've seen on social media that adamantly say that Star Trek is political. I don't believe Star Trek is political. It's sociopolitical. It's sociological. Yeah. Uh, It's uh, it delves into issues of culture, but I don't know if it's necessarily a political show per se. Um, so we're going to get into all of that. There, there's a lot to discuss. We only have about 55 minutes, so I'm hoping we can get through the discussion this week <laughs> rather than having to cut ourselves short. Dave, before we delve in, what were the highlights of the episode for you? Just keep it brief. The highlights of, this, uh, highlights of the entire episode, definitely the courtroom scenes. The courtroom scenes, especially the final one, it, is my favorite part of the episode because it does something that a lot of shows that have tried to do legal drama fail at, which is what they try to use the audience's emotional state to, this is the right way of thinking. We have to do it like this. No, you're dealing, dealing with a legal drama. You're having to actually look at it from a law standpoint. Mm-hmm. And seeing past the emotion, emotions okay, but being able to actually take a step back and say no, this is how they're going to win in the end. They win by using what the system that's in front of them. That's how you actually do a real good legal drama story. And we've had episodes like this in Star Trek where you have a specific character on trial. The data, the data trial. It's that's an amazing episode. It's an amazing episode filled with amazing moments. And I got so many callback vibes to that scene of, you know, like data on trial being asked if he was, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be sentient here? It's a different, it's a different topic at hand. It's showing the difference in a person's culture and seeing what happens when you, have a law that for a lot of people may seem fair, but for others is discriminatory and you have to acknowledge that. But the beautiful thing that I love, the highlight of everything was at the end of the day, they used the law against the law to win the day. 
It wasn't done by emotions. They didn't, you know, make the quote unquote counsel feel guilty and have to do that. No, the lawyer did her job and just basically found, Hey, because we all know that there's bad laws out there. That's why the government puts new laws in to counteract those. <laughs> and, and why it's important. We have those in law <laughs> that those were the highlights to me. I mean, everything else dude was great. I loved the story of Pike, uh, you know, the emotional core that was Pike and Una and seeing, you know, Captain Pike, this continuing his story of how he's going to put his crew's lives before his own. He doesn't care. He'll, he'll throw everything against it to make sure to help get them quote unquote safe. And I love the fact that they continue that narrative that Pike is willing to do whatever it takes to help his crew. He doesn't care. Even, uh, even if it harms him, he's a very different type of captain. He's a very different type of captain, especially now. I want to say he might be the most empathic captain we've had. He, he has empathy. Yes. And I'm not saying the other captains didn't, obviously they do, but I wouldn't say that's a governing trait, but his empathy is different from his other, other captains. Because if you compared him to Janeway and Picard and Kirk, Janeway, Picard and Kirk looked at their crew as family and they were important to them. Uh, you always say that, but I don't think Picard looked at the crew of his ship as Probably family Picard, until, yeah, right. later. until later, until later. Yeah. But with Pike, there's an extra element where he looks at his crew. Now they're just not important to him. Now in his brain, he feels they all have a great destiny before them that is bigger than him. So now it's not just, they're important to me. No, no, they're important to, in his way of thinking now, they are important to the entire universe. Well, that was the genius of the season finale, introducing old man Pike and, and having him tell our Pike that there's certain things that he just can't stop, you know, yeah. and if he does, it's going to destroy and alter someone else's future. And the reason why that's so awesome is because when you have a character like Pike and you're dealing with Star Trek, which is built on optimism, but you can't help having a character that knows his fate, this character, you can't help that this character is probably going to fall into a more of an existential rut. And existentialism isn't, always negative a lot of people think if you're existential you're hopeless you're hopeless but it's not always that existentialism sometimes is about finding your own purpose finding your own meaning in life when when the norm when the accepted the usual accepted notions that you grab onto as meaning in your life don't work for you you find something that does and someone like pike this goes right with what you said about him looking at his, his crew very differently, that he's very in tune with them emotionally. Yes. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that that's his purpose. He knows his time is limited. Is limited. And he's not making it about himself. He's making it about making sure his crew is safe. They're on the right path. That's his purpose. That's his purpose. And if you think about that moment in the end of the episode two was another highlight of mine when it pertains to Pike and Una, that moment when Pike just walks up to Una and just hugs her, mm -hmm. that Pike would never have done that in season one because that Pike or the, the Pike that was in season one 
would be very, you know, a little different. Yeah, he's, already, different. he's already having some character growth. Yeah, he, he he's having that character growth. This is a different Pike now who has this drive that probably none of his crew truly understand, which is going to be interesting because they're probably going to notice that Pike is acting different. He also wanted to fill up on those titties too. I mean, that oh, was a pretty wouldn't? snug, you know, hug. Like, I mean, I've done you? a few of those in my yeah, time. Yeah. Okay. I've done those many a time and I'm not, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. <laughs> what a pervert. That's sexual assault, David. <laughs> no, it isn't. It's giving a person, you know, a loving hug. Well, the hug was consensual, right? <laughs> exactly. The, the hug is consensual. And they know I may have held it on too long, but you know. You know them titties are there. <laughs> <laughs> That's so stupid. That's so fucking inappropriate. I'm going to cut all that. <laughs> it's all right. I'm fine with it. <laughs> all right, David. So, in, in, okay. So the synopsis, Commander Una faces court martial along with possible imprisonment and dishonorable dismissal from Starfleet. And her defense is in the hands of a lawyer who's also a childhood friend with whom she had a terrible falling out. The episode was directed by Valerie Weiss and written by Dana Horgan. All right, David. So I don't want to get overly long winded here, but we do need to really dissect a lot of what was happening. So please, if you have a thought in the middle of me talking, just jump in. Okay. Okay. Now, starting off, as I had said, the idea of eugenics, the concept of eugenics and Star Trek as I had previewed at the top of the show, it's a topic that we needed to touch on again because of the times that we live in. In the early part of the 20th century, eugenics was a budding scientific topic. It was a little controversial because of what it meant and how people were utilizing it, you know, man mandated sterilization of immigrants Yes. Just to name one of many issues. But then World War II happened. And Nazi Germany's own idea of eugenics turned into a gross ethical nightmare. The idea of eugenics where they meshed incorrectly with Nietzsche's ideas of the Ubermensch, which is the Superman. Yes. And it became a bit of a rallying call for white supremacy. Not a bit. It did it become did. a rallying call for white supremacy. So in short, our society ended up looking at eugenics unfavorably because Hitler sullied the benefits of such scientific advancements because there are benefits to eugenics. Oh, absolutely. But the concept and the idea of this specific avenue of science was forever sullied. It, to this very day, the moment you bring up eugenics, it creates moral and ethical debates. Because it's always going to be a controversial topic because of what happened at the, you know, the early part of the 20th century. Now, putting this into perspective, and this is the important part here and how it pertains to Star Trek. World War II ended in 1945 and Star Trek, the original series, aired just 21 years later. Now, let's bring this closer to home. And for comparison, 9-11 happened 21 years ago yes and our entire society changed forever and the effects of that attack still dictate in my lifetime how many of us view certain things so something relatively small like 
It was a tragedy, but it was relatively small in comparison to World War II. And the fact that it's still fresh on many of our minds. Now, look at World War II. 21 years later, it is still fresh on people's mind. The horrors, the death, the, the extermination of peoples. Yeah. So that being said, it would make sense for writers of early Trek to feel strongly against such a thing. Yeah, because if you look at even like the Federation ideals, what Roddenberry based the Federation on, they are anti-eugenics. Correct. They are anti-anything that dealt with oppression or a, like a Nazi authoritative behavior is, is anti-Federation. So like eugenics, whether you, you, whether you sway on either side, seeing the positive and negative of, of the entire ethics behind eugenics, it doesn't matter. It's about the abuse of eugenics. Correct. Because that, those are the questions that are raised in our own society. When we talk about eugenics, we talk about, okay, what are we going to do to make sure this doesn't turn into something that we can't control? You know, so let's flash forward now, David, to 2023. Scientific advancements are being made at astronomical rates and the dangers associated with eugenics is starting to change because of the advent of technology and more importantly, the seemingly fast approaching post-human world. And the term post-human refers to the, um, it refers to a hypothetical future stage of human evolution or existence in which humans have undergone significant technological enhancements or alterations that result in a different state of being. So all that being said, the world's view of eugenics and its debated relationship with post-humanism is changing rapidly. And to bring this back to Star Trek, it makes sense now that they would broker such a conversation because we are approaching that point where eugenics will be a topic of discussion. We are already oh, yeah. trying to augment our bodies with implants, computer chips. Technically, we've been augmenting people's bodies with heart problems oh, for, for a very long time. What medication. You, medication. Correct. So we're already doing it. We're, we're already, already disrupting the so-called natural flow of evolution as that one character mentioned. We already are doing that. And we are proceeding and delving into manipulating the DNA of humans in order to get rid of certain dangerous traits, uh, things that are, are inherited, diseases. So these are things that we are going to start delving into very soon. And it would feel weird if Star Trek is this lone franchise that still demonizes eugenics. So how else do you broker this conversation and offer new insight, new views of looking at something while also maintaining the core values that governs the Federation and Starfleet. Because we know the eugenics, this episode, we knew if you know Star Trek, you know that the, the resolve wasn't going to be, oh, and eugenics wins. Hurrah. hurrah. There's no way because flash forward to the 24th century, eugenics is still banned. Yes. So we knew that they weren't going to solve this problem of eugenics. No. But we figured that they were going to shed a new viewpoint on it, and that's where they succeeded. Well, one thing I did find that actually is really interesting talking about eugenics is like uh, back in 2000, October of 2015, the United Nations actually wrote 
that the ethical problems of human genetic engineering should not be confused with ethical problems of the 20th century eugenic movement. However, it is still problematic because it challenges the idea of human equality and opens up new forms of discrimination and stigmatization for those who do not want or cannot afford the technology. Even, and think about it, that was in 2015. We're talking about it even close to present day, that eugenics is still around. It's still a topic of conversation for a lot of people. It's just that not a lot of people talk about it because it is a very taboo subject. Well, it is a very taboo subject, Dave, because Zemu said it best in Falcon and Winter Soldier when he said the desire to become a superhuman cannot be separated from supremacist ideals is one of the greatest lines in that series. And that is the problem that eugenics poses to Starfleet and the Federation, at least when it comes to humanity, because I always viewed eugenics was a human problem. There's something inherently wrong with us that when you mess with us, our empathy doesn't increase with our strength, with our intelligence. We only focus on creating a hyper mind as opposed to hyper empathy. Empathy. They fucking dove <laughs> head first into this topic. Yeah, there was no waiting. I was actually really surprised about that, that they didn't, you know, tippy toe and wade in slowly on the subject. They dived head in, headlong into it. I was a little nervous, I, I'll be honest, because just because we're in this new era of Trek, and I don't even want to say new era of Trek, new era of television where everyone wants to tell you how to think. And even though I don't feel like Star Trek, even since 2017 under Kurtzman, I don't feel like they have, they have done that. I, despite what some people say, I know some people cry out and say that discovery is woke and there's certain things there. I don't, I even, don't, even, I don't buy into that. Even but, with strange new worlds, you see it that pe some people will say strange new worlds is woke. It's not woke. Especially if you look at this episode, I, I saw people complaining about this episode and I don't want to get into their complaints. Cause I just, am, I am burnt out on the internet. I don't give a fuck <laughs> what, what they say. I have my own thoughts in star Trek. And if you enjoy our thoughts, then listen to us. Listen to us. But I don't really fucking care about what the internet says because it's just fucking toxic as fuck. But yeah. I did see a few people saying some things about this episode, saying that it's Star Trek under Kurtzman doing the same thing, being woke. But I can point to nine different episodes in TNG, at least five or six in the original series that are pretty much identical to this episode. And oh, that's yeah. why I said this episode in itself isn't entirely unique. It's delving into familiar territory. It's a familiar format, um, but they're re recontextualizing the argument for modern audiences and yes. for the modern times that we are in. And that's why it worked for me. So when people cry, woke, I'm like, are you guys not, have you never watched star Trek? Oh, absolutely. Because go back and watch TNG. I want to say season two through five had very similar episodes pertaining to ethics. And they sometimes even point the finger at Picard and say, well, Picard, you kind of made a poor decision here. Yeah. I mean, you had the, the episode that lower decks made fun of. I forgot the name of the alien species where you had two alien species that relied on each other. And one was addicted to drugs and the other one supplied the drug. Mm -hmm. If that was produced today, I would guarantee you people would probably find some complaint 
to say that it was a woke episode. Well, yeah, because like, I think people have to, people have to understand woke radical left. Yeah. Fringe radical left where, and it gets almost repetitive here. It goes back to like what you're saying. This episode recontextualizes the argument. It, it, it sheds more information on the, on the debate. Yeah. The debate of this episode was the debate of eugenics and the ethics behind it. And like what happens? Okay. Show us something different. That's not being woke. Being woke would have been like, Oh, you know, discrimination's bad. End of end of statement. The only comment that I could possibly point to or line of dialogue that I can point to that someone could probably say, was dangerous of, of veering close into that woke area is when the lawyer woman, I forgot her name, dear, dear, um, Nira, Nira, when she had said race instead of species, when she first met with Pike and she had alluded to the fact that the Federation is, is essentially racist. Yeah. And she said race. And I'm like, eh, I don't know if I agree with that terminology because you guys aren't races necessarily, you're species. There's a difference when you're talking about the interstellar community. Are we talking about race? Are we talking about species? That's why I liked further on in the episode with her dialogue. Yes. She clarified. Yes, exactly. And that's why it ended up working for me in the end. I didn't have a problem with that. But going back to what we were saying, Dave, by recontextualizing, just to piggyback off your last thought there, they can strengthen and they did strengthen the Federation stance while also holding it up to philosophical debate, which is what Star Trek is always about. Uh, most of us are aware of that by now. I'm aware that there were a fair amount of Trek fans, as we were saying, that were a little disgruntled with the episode because they felt like it might have been accusatory in nature, possibly even undermining Trek's core ideological values by placing Starfleet and the Federation under such an unflattering lens at the beginning of the episode. Well, especially in the scene with April when she just guts April on the stand. Yeah. But that's the genius of the episode because you think it's going in one direction and And then it, it goes in the opposite direction. Yeah. And I will say what I've said before, if you wish to hold, I said this during our discussions with Discovery, if you wish to hold on to an idea and you want to make sure that it can hold up to scrutiny, then you must debate the idea. Yeah. If you don't debate the idea, you look like you're afraid. You look like you don't believe in those ideas. So when the writers of Star Trek do these types of episodes where it looks like seemingly that they're going to just destroy and undermine everything Roddenberry did. But then they go back and by debating it, it actually strengthens the idea because once you question a series of premises or claims and you prove the conclusion is valid, then the entire argument is that much easier to be proven sound. And you know, that's what they did. The character Nero was used to hurdle uh, counter arguments. And in the end, the Federation and Starfleet were proven just and their intentions. And their intentions. Their desire to prevent another eugenics war. But there was a warning. A classic Star Trek warning. Don't allow your fears to control you. Because fear is the root of all prejudice. 
Is, isn't that what we're used to in Star Trek? The, in the old days, you have that classic little warning. Yeah. And at the, the end of every episode was like, or thought, maybe not a warning, but a thought, that final thought. It was a thought because you don't want to say it's a warning because like the way they did it was showing it's great showing all these emotional, getting the argument emotional. Why are we, why are we prosecuting Una? She's a hero. She's done this. She's done this. She's been a fantastic role model and everything and getting the entire side on Una's side emotionally lifted. Right. But this is about a debate, an argument, a discussion about law. So I love that in the very end, the lawyer basically cut right through all the emotion and said, okay, we can't solve this solution with, with emotion. We have to solve it with laws. We have to solve it with the fact that, okay, this, we know that this law is unfair for this moment right now, but that's why we have this law over here that protects people, gives them asylum and makes sure that they will not be discriminated because we already have a law in it. Why? Because we're the Federation. We're smart. <laughs> we're smart. Dude, there was this line, the episode, I believe at the end, and it might be my favorite line in all of the Kurtzman era of Star Trek. When Nira says law is not a mirror to a society, a law is an ideal, a beacon on how to be our better selves. Yes. Remove Nira from from the scene for a second and replace her with James T. Kirk in the classic Star Trek series. Tell me you can't see him saying something identical to that. Yeah. And it fits perfectly. It's basically, you know, like the whole message about this was let's not yell at each other. Let's not argue. Let's take the law and basically use it to our, what our advantage. Yes. That to me was the winning statement because for those people that might have gotten mad or on the fence and, ooh, this is getting to that dangerous area of possibly undermining Trek and, and removing the optimism of the Federation and Starfleet, well, that comment alone should pacify people. And I hate to say it, people, people that automatically jump to that, you're the one that be, those are the, those are the type of people that basically in the episode are like what happens with April. April got emotion. Uh, uh, Admiral April was caught in an emotional moment and he got torn to pieces. That's what happens. <laughs> That's what happens in, in, in regards to looking at something and immediately trying to bum rush into it emotionally. You have to step back and take a look at the law. You have to actually get separation from yourself from that moment to understand what's going on. Now, as I mentioned, David, we, um, we say a lot that Star Trek is sociological, that it's sociopolitical rather than just straight political. And that thought there will help with the next interpretation. So as interpretations go, much of the episode was an allegory for cultural assimilation, which, as I said at the top of the show, has been a growing debate now for a few decades, and it positions two opposing ideas from differing generations against each other. Mm -hmm. In years past, 
there have been immigrant families that wish to assimilate to not just live in the United States, but to truly become a part of the United States. And with that, many of them refuse to let their children speak their native tongue, but instead only English. I'm sure your family, David, had iterations of that within your family. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My family as well, coming from an immigrant family. This has largely changed among a lot of circles. Now it's generally frowned upon by younger generations to view the United States as a melting pot, as the saying goes, but more of a multicultural society where one still holds on to their cultural heritage. So the idea that Una and her family wish to blend into human culture while ignoring their connections to the Illyrians is similar to the accusations made today against members of particular races that attempt to shed their overt cultural connections in favor of or in favor for blending into blending society. Blending into society. And the, the really cool thing that I found about this point about the episode, their, their emotion, about their emotional core in this episode was the fact that normally – People, just like what you alluded to, people frown on that. People nowadays look, look at people and say, oh, you, you're forgetting your culture. You're not being uh, who you are. I honestly think you and I are the last of that generation, right? Where yeah. it was like, hey, you assimilate. You assimilate. Yeah. But I love the fact that they pointed out that we're not doing that because we hate our culture. We're doing it because we want to become of something greater. Yes. I, I think that's lost in the argument. You're, that's you, David, lost in the you're argument. Absolutely right. And it, it was about when our immigrant relatives, grandmother, mother, fathers, when they pushed those ideas, it was about being proud. About being proud. That they made it to the Mecca. Made it to the promised land. Yeah. And like the sacrifice that would take, you know, when, when we, when people choose to do that, it's a big sacrifice. It's not something to be like, you know, looked down upon. Like, and that's what I loved about that one scene when Una goes about telling the story about her family, making the sacrifice because they want to be part of something greater like the Federation because of their ideals of being able to see this diversity in their, in, in, their makeup. They wanted things to be easier for their kids. They wanted everything easier to be for their kids. And then it, the whole episode too, Nero was the, that person that basically, oh, you, you're bad because you threw away your culture. You threw away who you were. And then suddenly the light bulb goes off on Nero and saying, how am I being, how am I prosecuting this person, you know, socially for what she did or what her family did when they did it out of sacrifice because they felt they were doing the better thing. They were, they were trying to do something better for their children. It wasn't about them. Yeah. It goes to show you, David, that, so we both have similar views. Apparently it goes to show you that we don't necessarily need to agree with a concept put in star Trek for us to like it. Like, listen, I'm all about multiculturalism. If that's the way of the land and that's the direction we're going as a country and we hold on to our, our cultural heritage, by all means, I, I don't care. I chose assimilation. My family chose assimilation. Um, it's the reason why, you know, 
for example, I studied this recently. I want to say there's an article that was reading about um, uh, cultural assimilation versus multiculturalism. And they were go- they were bringing up all the different groups of immigrants over the last 150 years. And they pointed to the Irish people because the Irish people used to be treated just as poorly as the Asians and African-Americans, the, the black folk. Yes. But the difference was, according to this article that was written by a, a sociologist as well as a philosopher, was talking about that the Irish people were able to evade that eventually because they were one of the few immigrant communities that chose to assimilate. But that's why there isn't that distinction. Oh, the Irish folk. We don't say the Irish folk. They have 100% assimilated into American culture. There isn't really that distinction any longer. Yeah, it's it's very similar to like, I've, I've read similar articles too about that, that uh, idea, that movement that's happening where we're seeing that in like, when you look at Italians, with the Italian immigration, same thing with them. They became yeah. they they were seen very differently than they are today. But they what did they do? They assimilated into the culture to the point that basically we don't associate them as Italians. They're they're Americans just like us. And you know, I'd like to say progressive progressively, we're we are getting there like that. You're seeing that nowadays, even with like. Asian communities and African American communities. They're more assimilating. You're seeing more pushback from people who, no, I don't want to assimilate. I I don't want to give up my heritage. Yeah. Yeah. So I really liked getting back on topic. I really liked how they broached this entire conversation in the episode. In a lot of ways, it was designed like a classic Socratic dialogue where typically um, Plato, the philosopher, when sharing his ideas, spoke not in his own voice, but the voice of others. And for those not familiar with this, basically, while the conversation in a Socratic dialogue unfolds naturally, it features a process by which even someone who lacks knowledge of a given subject may test the understanding of a putative expert. So the form of dialectic featured in the Socratic works became the basis of subsequent practice in, in the academy where it was taught by Aristotle. Yeah. So my point is, while the conversations in a Socratic dialogue unfolds naturally, it is used as a way to share ideas and present counterarguments, then counterargument to your counterargument until a resolution or a compromise is agreed upon or met. It's debate 101. Correct. And you don't actually just preach to someone in like a manifesto type yes. thing. You create characters. So it's more like a story. And that, if you go back and break down this episode, it is written like Socratic dialogue. Yes. It presents ideas. It presents the counter arguments. A new counterargument to your argument, then another counterargument, then we've reached a conclusion. And each it's, character is representative of that argument. Like Nero, uh, Nero was the argument of anti uh, anti assimilation. She is not just anti federation. I would assimilate her. Yeah, she's a keeper. 
She is a cold. She's especially, hot, right? Is she hot? Especially after she gives that last statement, dude. When she gave the last philosophical statement, I had a philosophy boner. You know, if it, uh, give me a couple more minutes, I would have actually probably orgasmed. Who, on the oh, screen. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Whoever does the casting for this show needs to be given numerous gold stars. Yes. Because I think it's the best fucking casting in this era of Star Trek. I oh, mean, yeah. They're finding some really good people talent. people are just... Now, forget the talent, David. Superficially. <laughs> Superficial. They're all good looking people. <laughs> I can't take it. But Mike, but they have the talent as long as, as well as the good looks. Yeah, right. That was a double bonus. <laughs> it's a double bonus. <laughs> that's the, that's the casting director stipulation. So uh, what's your strategy when you uh, cast people in a strange new world? Well, they have to be beautiful and smart. They got to have a nice package and boobs <laughs> and boobs and talented. That's and, it. And, and talented. That's about it. <laughs> Seriously, though, everybody is good looking in this show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my even the Admiral dude is a good looking dude. My bisexual uh, radar just (laughs) explodes onto the screen whenever I see him going, God damn. But this is how it was with the original series. I mean, they were all good looking people in the original series. You know, and then we uh, had uh, Deep Space Nine was a sexy show. I think that was probably the sexiest show up until maybe Strange New Worlds. Would you agree or disagree? Okay, define. Uh, okay, sexy, sexiest uh, Star Trek show. Sex, sexual themes, uh, sexy people. I mean, that's all D Space Nine. I mean, come on, Enterprise had a good cast. Oh, Enterprise forced it too much, though. Like, yeah, we're gonna rub some fucking uh, antiviral. <laughs> No, 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 that, on your back. no, that I got to get into I gotta your, put this lotion. Yeah, I want to make sure your vagina doesn't get uh, oh, we a need virus. To, we need to have a shower scene. Shower scene, please. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, how many times is Trip and Archer running around the Enterprise in their underwear? Wet. Yeah. <laughs> wet. They're always wet. It's just hilarious. Yeah, like these glistening body sweat is what it was. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, was the, they're not air conditioning in the Enterprise. <laughs> oh my God. See, when I watched the show, when it was originally airing, I didn't think nothing of it. Oh, but I w- saw it firsthand, dude. Uh, well, well <laughs> I don't think I really thought about it too much other than the fact that, like, oh, look, they're, they're doing things. Okay. But now when you rewatch it, it gets a little <laughs> uncomfortable at times because I can't believe how de- that's desperation, right? For ratings. That's the only reason why they were doing that. And see, my brain was saying, no, this makes sense because, you know, this is a primitive, uh, yeah, okay. primitive enterprise. They don't, they don't have the primitive. proper, uh, yeah. proper cleaning apparatus. That's how Berman explained it to the actors. He's all right, guys. So because we're a hundred years in the past, uh, 200 years or more in the past from TNG era, this is a primitive vessel. A vessel. So I really want to give that impression. So yeah. everyone just strip naked. We don't have medicines like we do, you know, in the regular Star Trek or in the future. It's all lotions. Yeah, it's all <laughs> lotions, you know, things that need to be applied Creams. by the opposite sex. Some, same times, the same sex. <laughs> but that's the only way it works medically in this world. So please uh, go ahead and strip down. It's a requirement for your job. You know, I need you guys all sweaty. It's supposed to be steam engines. Can we get a spray bottle here? We need to just just spray down to Paul, make it look like she's sweating between her breast cleavage, and then give us a little ball sweat on uh, Archer. Mr. Director, why do your notes say, like, spray her chest more than anything else? Eh, For realism. (laughs) You need that boob sweat. Boob sweat. So the difference, David, to answer your question, the difference with Enterprise is it was trying too hard. 
for the first season, maybe first season and a half, because that did die out after moving into season three, season four. They had their moments, but it was the the needed Star Trek moments because Star Trek has always been. I would even say, yeah, you know what? Hypersexual. I would say that that's, that's why it's tough saying like, what is the sexiest show? Because I'm sorry, you can't leave Voyager off that list because of seven of nine. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, that costume you know itself just I, takes it all the way. I think this is a Patreon discussion. Yes, I think we need to have a, what series is sexiest. sexiest. <laughs> <laughs> we'll lose. We'll lose all credibility after that show. No, watch. It's going to be our most listened show. Bunch of sickos out there. <laughs> Bunch of Barclays. <laughs> all right. So I, I believe that's pretty much the, the end of our discussion. We went through it a lot quicker than I had anticipated. I thought we'd spend more time, but that goes to show you just the, the concise writing of the episode and how clear the statements and intent were that's a problem that some shows also face Dave, when they're wanting to delve into important topics. Yeah. And they meander, it they gets convoluted, yeah. it ends up being muddled and you're not really quite sure what they were trying to say. When you watch an episode like this and you pay attention, you know exactly what they're saying, what they're doing. And that's because the episode was written so well. I had a, I had a really great epiphany about how, concise and well-paced Star Trek Strange New Worlds is with their writing room mm -hmm. is when I watched this and I watched uh, on another show that we're, we're going to cover on this network, uh, Secret Invasion from Marvel. Mm -hmm. At the 30-minute mark halfway, Mike, for Strange New Worlds, I felt like I knew the story right away and it felt like I just watched... 20 minutes compared to like 30, 40 minutes, right? <laughs> yeah. Secret Invasion, it was slow. It was meandering. It was, I'm going to, they're going to take their time. When they got the 30 minutes, I felt like I'd been watching 60 minutes. Yeah, dude, that's not the case with and, Strange New Worlds. And know. with Strange New Worlds, it feels like classic television it's where it's like concise. Concise, get to the point. You only have 50, 60 minutes in an episode to get this done. And I love that about Strange New Worlds. Yeah. It's expertly written. Yeah. The, the, that's not even up for debate. It's just is expertly written. If you know how to analyze television, you may not like what they're doing. Let's say you're on the side of fuck Kurtzman era. Then you could probably nitpick the fuck out of the show. But one thing you can't nitpick is the writing itself. Yeah. Just go into your final thoughts, Dave. My final thoughts on this one, this was actually a really good episode. I, I've seen what you're uh, talking about with some of the negative comments from a lot of Star Trek fans. It's sad, right? Star Trek going woke again, <sighs> stuff like that. It's so sad. But I think it's because people don't understand this type of writing. And they automatically say, oh, this is going to be a trial of Una about her race. Okay, it's all about wokeism. No, it isn't. It is about basically a normal philo philosophical debate that Star Trek always has done. Yeah, always. <laughs> Especially since you cannot, if you're a Star Trek fan and you say that this ruins Star Trek, then, that, then the data trial ruins Star Trek. And if you were to tell that to a Star Trek fan, you probably would get like killed. 
by a, by a mob of them. And what about that episode where those two aliens killed themselves off, and they were supposedly one was supposed to be black, and one was white. One yeah. one the represented black folks, and one represented white folks, and it showed this civil war that just basically decimated their entire world because they couldn't get behind the idea that they're all one species. One species. But they instead, be, there were different races. They fought against each other until they annihilated themselves. I mean, so if you get mad at this episode, then go back and get mad at that episode. Exactly. I mean, yeah. So, so what, what's your score? Dave? My score for this one is a, is a 97. I really like this episode. 97. Yeah, I really, really like this episode. I don't want to put it too high, like in the 98s, 99s, because... This is only episode two. Like he said, too high. As if 97 isn't high. Well, I don't want to go too high. I'm being honest because I, even when I was actually coming up with the score, I'm like, I really like this episode. I like these last two episodes. You can really like an episode, Dave, without giving it, you know, giving, a high 90s. Oh, come score. on. But uh, come on, dude. Can you actually name something negative about this? If no, we were th there, there this, really isn't. There really isn't. I, when it comes to pretty much all aspects of. Helmet conventions, I mean, it works. I mean, just setting aside the what they did with the story, the narrative itself, just look at the visual effects. I mean, God damn it. Thank you. The visual effects are finally in order. Are still are still here. And, and when I say finally, I'm not criticizing last season of Strange New Worlds. I had a lot of problems with that first season of Picard. It started scaring me with some of the blurry visual effects and the, the blowing out of, of certain light blooms or the hide effects. It seems like they, and also Picard season three fixed, fixed a lot of that as well. Cause the visual effects in season three was mind blowing as well. Mm -hmm. It seems like they, they found what works for them with that volume uh, production. The AR wall is working. They seem to really understand how to make it work for them. Cause there are certain productions that don't use it nearly as well as they are. Oh. So I mean, that's another aspect. David, also the Laanne stuff was great and oh, how they're reminding us. I was hoping they brought her into that at whole storyline because she is um, a descendant of Khan. of Khan. So it would feel really remiss of the writers if they didn't try to pull her into that argument in some way. And they did. And it was interesting because not only did they, 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 bring her into the conversation, but they also helped flesh out just a little bit for her character so that she's just not being idle in development. When they said that she carries that she's afraid that she carries the same dangerous traits that makes her a mom as Khan. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that was good. Just little things like that helps. We don't forget our other characters, even though this show was um, highlighted Una and this whole ethical debate, you still had, your moments with Mbanga and how he understands the subtleties of Vulcan body language. Oh my God, dude, I mean, that was awesome. Yeah. And I was like cracking up like, going, Oh my God. And also Ortegas. Ortegas was actually a really great, uh, did a really great job in this episode. Yeah, I because like she her. Was, she was playing that lighthearted foil that kind of, kind of represented the normal audience. Normal audience was just watching this seeing getting simple statements out yeah we do got a wrap dave so i'm just gonna give this a 91 percent. it's a very very good episode but just to continue my thought from a second ago ortegas she's one character that i feel like we do need to have 
uh, a special episode to revolve around her because I think she's the only cast member so far that has not had her own episode that was really just about her. No, you're right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I What's mean, they, they do a great job giving her something to do in pretty much every single episode. And you're right. She also is the levity uh, in a lot of ways for the show. Mm-hmm. Just like Tilly was the levity of Discovery. Obviously, Ortega's isn't as flamboyant as Tilly is. You know, crazy and quirky, I should say. But she is the levity of the show. But I do think, she, I think we should. It feels weird if we if we don't get something that focuses on her this season. She is kind of like the one crew member that seems left out for the past, not just this current season, but also last season. Yeah. Where we didn't get a lot, but what we got was good, but... She's always front and center. She's it's always not, front it's and center. It's not like they're forgetting her. I hope that basically it's not like a Hammer thing where Hammer was awesome in yeah. season one and then they killed him. Yeah, but now we got Pelia. <laughs> And she's going to be, a f- I, I think she's going to be a really good addition. I think she's going to be a good addition, Man, but I'm I, hoping Ortegas doesn't actually have the same fate as Hammer. That's what I'm getting. Yeah, we can't get into the territory of just killing off characters either. That's not really a Star Trek thing. I don't, I hope I we don't. Is, I hope we don't. But it is, it is a TV trope though. Unfortunately, it is. Yeah. All right. This does bring us to the end. I do. I want to remind everyone. That we are on iTunes as well as Spotify. Just search Star Trek from the holodeck. And if you watch us on YouTube, give us a thumbs up and subscribe, share our show. Also, you can join our Patreon page, patreon.com slash digital. And when you pledge $5 or more a month, you'll gain access to hundreds of hours of additional Star Trek discussions and our pre-show as well that we do pretty much Every week, correct? We do. Yeah, we do. Week. We do it as a companion show. Yeah, it's called the the uh, Unimatrix Zero is what we call our pre-show, and we just we're just more casual, and we discuss things that we can't get to or possibly relevant Star Trek news. Like what is sex? Was the sexiest Star yeah, Trek? We're probably gonna do that. I think that's a good. I topic. think that's a good topic. Yeah, we'll be really douchey that episode. Oh, it's going to be really raunchy too because there's so many examples. (laughs) All right. I want to thank everyone for listening. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.